Words fill a page. Pages fill a chapter. Chapters fill a book. Everyone has a story. Some have a story they are proud of telling. Others will have stories they would rather not tell. Every decision, big or small, writes the story of your life. We all have portions of our story that are still unwritten, but one day you'll be able to tell a story from this season of your life and see the hand of the author as you turn the pages. Let God write your story and you'll live one worth telling. My story, living the story you want to tell. Well, good morning, everyone. How are you doing this morning? Good. I'm glad to hear that. I am excited about tonight. Anybody else excited about tonight? Yeah? It's going to be awesome. Looking forward to that. Hey, if you're new here, my name is Adam Bowers. I'm one of the pastors here at First Free Church. We're so glad that you are joining us today. And we are in the middle of a series called My Story, Living the Story You Want to Tell. We're looking at different characters in the Bible to see how they encountered challenges in their lives, how they dealt with those, sometimes good, sometimes bad. And then we're also hearing stories from people in our church or connected with our church that relate to what we're talking about that morning. So today I want to tell you a story, and it starts with a... uh, in a very unusual place. Um, this is a story of rags to riches. It's a story of really kind of an unparalleled rise to success for this individual. He was scrawny probably and smelly. Um, nobody really thought that he was going to amount to much in his life. He wasn't the kind of person who was picked first for sports or anything really for that matter. So he was the youngest of eight boys. And his eight older brothers were these kind of macho, manly men, and he was just kind of the scrawny little guy that got to do the stuff the older brothers didn't want to do. Being the youngest of eight boys uh, meant that he probably wore hand-me-downs that had been worn like seven times before him. Anybody experienced that in your life? What did, what did, see, I was the oldest. I never had to deal with that, but some of you poor people, you had hand-me-downs to deal with. And, and that's what he had to deal with, and so he had to do the jobs that his brothers didn't want to do, and so his job in the family business was to be the person who watched the sheep. He got to watch the sheep. Now, I don't know what kind of chores you had to do growing up, but there is not much I can think of that would be more boring than having to watch the sheep. Most of the time, you're just sitting around while they graze, and they just kind of eat the grass, and every now and then you get to move them and do other stuff, you know, and, and all that, but he was out there watching the sheep. Very boring thing to do. Lots of idle time on his hands, and so he had a couple of pastimes that he used to pass the time. One is that he would practice and get better on his instrument called a lyre, and a lyre is kind of like a harp type of an instrument, so he got pretty good at that. Another thing he would do is practice with his slingshot, so he got better at at hitting targets that he wanted with his slingshot, and occasionally that really helped him because there'd be a lion that would come or a bear that would come and attack the sheep, and he could fend it off, but even with that, he'd come back, and none of that seemed to impress his brothers or his father very much, and so even the victories that he had out there watching the sheep weren't really that helpful for him. So this scrawny little guy from Bethlehem out there watching the sheep has these pastimes of playing the lyre and his slingshot. Eventually, that did lead to some good jobs for him. One was he got a job in the palace playing his instrument for the king. That's, that's pretty cool. And then at one point, his skill with a slingshot got him a gig taking down a, a giant named Goliath. Yeah. So obviously, we're talking about King David. King David had kind of a meteoric rise in, in some sense. He had lots of military success. He was on the run for a little while. He ends up being king of Israel and an incredible king 
of Israel. I mean, brought the nation to unbelievable success militarily and economically and just the whole region. It was really incredible. And then here's what the Apostle Paul said about David in Acts chapter 13. He says, God removed Saul and replaced him with David. So Saul was the king before David. Replaced him with David, a man about whom God said, I have found David. So God found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. Wouldn't you love for God to be able to say that about you? A man or a woman after my own heart. They, they feel like I do. They, they care about what I care about. And then he says, he will do everything I want him to do. That's an amazing thing to have said about you. I would love for that to be written about any one of us. But the truth is, there was a dark side to David as well. A dark side that led him down a, a path of sin after sin after sin, of lust and adultery and cover-up and deceit, manipulation and murder. It's a horrible downward spiral that David went on. And so as we look at this story today, there are two questions that I want you to consider. The first one is, how did King David have such a big failure? How did this happen? What brought us to this point? And the second question I want you to think about is, how could he ever recover from such a big failure? Once you have messed up that big, and we're going to see, if you don't know the story, David messed up big. How on earth could you ever recover from that? So the first question, how did David have such a big failure? That's going to help us to avoid the same kind of problems in our lives. We're going to see some things that we can apply today to catch us if we are going down that path. But the second question is for those of you that may have made a big mistake, maybe even recently, and you are now wondering, does God still love me? Does God still have a future for me? Is there some purpose that I still have here? Is there any point to any of all of this? And we're going to look at that today with David. So before we dive into that, I'm just going to ask you to bow your heads and pray with me as we open up the Word of God together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your Word. Thank you for what it teaches us. And I pray that you would teach us today. God, I pray that if there's anyone here who is struggling with a, a path that's taking them toward bigger and bigger mistakes, that you would help them to see the error of their ways and to return to you, to have a restored relationship with you. And God, for those of us here who have made a big mistake and are maybe still struggling with the aftermath or the consequences or have not turned away from that yet, God, I pray that you'd speak to our hearts today. Teach us what you want us to learn so that we can live for you. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. It's really hard to read this story about David. If you, if you know King David and you love King David and the great story about him as a, a kid growing up and then being anointed to be the next king and then defeating Goliath and going on the run and all of the things that he endured and he was faithful through it all, had the opportunity to kill the King Saul who was trying to kill him but he wouldn't do it. This is a guy of great character. A guy who, if you looked at his biography up to that point, you'd think, man, this really is a man after God's own heart. What a man of incredible character. And we get to a passage today in 2 Samuel, and we see an epic downfall. And it's hard to read through that if you know and love King David because you just see kind of his brokenness and his sinfulness just opened up and laid bare. But in a way, it's really encouraging for us too. Because the Bible will show us what's behind the curtain, even for its best characters. 
Even for the people that get magnified as, wow, the amazing, mighty King David. Hey, he was broken too, just like you and just like me. And if this were any other king in the ancient world, there's no way this stuff would have been written in this detail about him. Because kings controlled what was written about them for their legacy. And they didn't allow anything bad to be written about them. So any other kingdom in the ancient world, what you would tend to find, especially from history coming from their own people, which this is, you would find all their victories, all their wins, all the good things they did. Even that would be embellished to be bigger than real life. But one of the reasons we can trust the Bible is because it gives us the bad along with the good. And so we know that it's not just trying to give us a sugar-coated version of history. Last week we talked about the Instagram versions of our lives and the fact that we always want to put on display for people the best picture we could of ourselves. Now, I know there are some of you that don't even have Instagram. Anybody proud of that fact? Like, I don't have Instagram, and woohoo, I'm one of those people. Yeah, all right. I got to be honest with you, the first service had you beat big time, okay? They, that was like 90% of the hands went up. <clears throat> That's okay. Hey, even if you don't have Instagram, you still do this. You still put forward a version of your life that you want people to see because you want them to think a certain way about you. And so maybe it's the car that you drive. Maybe it's the clothes that you wear. Maybe it's the hobbies that you're into or makeup or jewelry or all that other stuff that you do to try to present a certain image of yourself. And I'm not saying that that stuff is bad. It's just, it's what we do. We try to present ourselves a certain way. But the truth is behind all of that, there is a broken person that needs Jesus in our lives, that needs God's redemption in our life. And so these stories that the Bible shares with us, where it opens up the brokenness of who would otherwise look like perfect heroes, are so encouraging to us to be able to learn from them. I believe that it is far better to learn from the mistakes of others than to make your own. Would you agree with that? It's way better to learn from the mistakes of others than to make your own. So let's do that today. Let's learn from David, a man who made many mistakes, but was called a man after God's own heart. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 11. You can follow along in your Bibles or at efree.org slash Bible or in the YouVersion Bible app. If you go to events, you'll find First Free Church there. 2 Samuel chapter 11 verse 1 says this, in the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. Right away you know something's up. Wait a minute. Kings normally go out to war. David sent someone else. They destroyed the Ammonite army, so big military success, and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. In case you weren't clear on that from the first verse, or the first part of that verse, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed something. He noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. Now, if you want to understand David's downfall, it starts right here. And it starts with the fact that he chose to be idle. David chose to be idle. He should have been going off to war with his army, but instead he stayed back. Now, it may sound weird to you to hear that there was a time when the kings would normally go to war. Almost like, well, I guess it's springtime, time to go pick a fight with somebody and go battle somewhere. That's not all how it worked. Okay, so these people were already in a war with the Ammonites. They didn't like each other. The Ammonites were wicked people, and they were supposed to expel the Ammonites a long time ago. So they're fighting with the Ammonites, 
and they had some success with them. But here's the thing. When winter comes, everything gets really wet and moist and the chariots and the horses can't get through the ground. So they have to hold off on their fighting for a while. And, and back in this day and age, it was just the normal thing that wintertime, you just stopped your, your fighting. And some militaries would use that as an opportunity to go do some advanced missions and put supply drops out there so that when springtime came and the ground dried up a little bit, you could then take your army through there and there would be supplies for you along the way. So this was the season when kings would normally go to war. And you would expect David to be with them. This is the guy that killed Goliath. This is the guy that was this great decorated war veteran. He's the commander-in-chief, but instead he sends Joab in his place. How many of you have heard this phrase before? The idle mind is the devil's playground or workshop. I heard both. How many of you grew up with playground? Okay, how many of you grew up with workshop? All right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have these different ways of saying it. Neither one sounds good to me. Um, I don't want to spend any time in the devil's workshop or playground. They're both pretty bad. An idle time is the devil, or an idle mind rather, is the devil's playground or workshop. What does that mean? Well, when we have time on our hands, we tend to spend some of that time thinking about stuff maybe that we shouldn't do. It's an opportunity for the devil to throw his fiery darts at us and say, hey, here's a temptation for something you might want to look at or something you might want to do that you are not supposed to do. Whereas if we were being productive with that time, then we wouldn't be able to dwell on those thoughts. I've mentored a lot of young men over the years, and one of the things I always do with them is ask them how they spend their free time. Because if they have an awful lot of free time, that is like a big giant target on their back to be tempted to do all kinds of stuff that they shouldn't be involved in. But instead, if they stay productive, if they're involved in service and ministry and helping other people and good hobbies and jobs and those types of things, then they can stay on track. David had so much idle time that he laid down and took a nap. Now, is there anything wrong with taking naps? I am not going to step on the nap toes. I know better. I love naps. Naps are amazing. There's a certain age you hit where all of a sudden it's like they were awful and now I love them. And, and I live for naps, right? Here's the problem with David, okay? David was supposed to be somewhere else. He was not supposed to be napping right now, and and the text has already made that clear. This is when he is supposed to be with his army, off to war, and instead, what is he doing? Laying down on his couch in the palace, because he chose to be idle. So he gets up off of his couch one day, after his midday rest, and he walks up to the roof of his palace. The roofs were like decks, basically. You could walk up, they're all flat, they've got a little railing around them, you can look out and see things. And David's palace is at the top of the hill. If you were with us a couple months ago when a bunch of us went to Israel together, we got to see the topography of the land and how you've got all these houses and progressively up the hill and there's houses on the other side of the hill and then you can work your way higher and there's the palace and all the wealthy people live up here and then there's the temple on top of that. And so you work your way up there so David could look out over the city and, and here's his problem. He, he was looking out over the city and he saw this woman who was beautiful and here's the real issue. He chose to keep looking. He chose to keep looking. That's the problem. So you and I are always going to encounter things in our lives that we should not keep looking at, but that we couldn't help looking at once, right? There's always going to be something. I remember going over, uh, overseas one time. I had a whole team of people with me. We were on a missions trip. We're walking around. We go down to the subway. We use the subway to get everywhere, and we could not believe the advertisements that were down in the subway system. Because the, just the, the immorality that was on display there, you couldn't, you couldn't avoid it. 
You just walk past it, and once you identify it, you're like, whoa, okay. But see, that initial look, that's, that's temptation. That's not sin. You, you didn't know it was there. He glanced out over the city. He's looking around. He sees a woman taking a bath, and what should he have done in that moment? He should have diverted his eyes. Joseph was a man who was given the opportunity for adultery, and what did Joseph do? He fled, he ran away, he got out of there as quickly as possible. All David had to do was go, that's it. But he kept looking. Now Bathsheba should not have been bathing out in the open. She should not have been anywhere. This is a culture that, that pra- uh, praises modesty. She should not have been visible. And if you know anything about the topography of the land, David was not the only one most likely that could see her. If she's out there invisible from the top of the roofs, there are other houses that are up there as well that from the tops of their roofs could also see what she was doing. So not a very modest thing to do, not a wise thing to do. But David had a choice. He could have turned his gaze, but he kept looking. Now, do you think that as David looked at her, he, he took an interest in her, do you think that the thought crossed his mind, this may lead to adultery, murder, and the death of my child? Not a chance. But that's how sin works. It starts small and one little indiscretion leads to a bigger bad choice, leads to a bigger sin, leads to a downfall. And that's exactly what we're going to see with David. So in verse 3 of chapter 11, he sent someone to find out who she was. And he was told, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. The third step in David's failure is that he ignored the warning signs. He ignored the warning signs. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Messengers come back to him and they say, hey, this is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam. Up till that point, that's the normal way to introduce someone. So-and-so, daughter of so-and-so. Normal thing. Here's what's not normal. By the way, she's also the wife. This woman's married, David. You are the guy that's supposed to enforce the laws about this. Do you know what the punishment in our law for adultery is? It's death. This is not something you're supposed to be doing. She's somebody's wife, man. So the messengers tell him that. And then they say, she's not just somebody's wife. She's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And if that name sounds familiar, it's because this is one of David's mighty men. This is part of his secret service, his special forces. These are the guys that risk their lives to protect David and fight on his behalf. In fact, Uriah is right now off battling the Ammonites when David is back in his palace. This is the wife of a man who is one of your greatest supporters. And all of that should have been enough for David to say, never mind. And now is a chance when he could turn away. But you probably know the story by now. He brings in Bathsheba. He sleeps with her. She goes away. The Bible actually tells us by how it communicates that it's about a month later. She sends him back a message. And do you remember what that message says? I'm pregnant. Uh Uh-oh. This is a problem for David. Now he's faced with a choice again. He could come clean about his wrongdoing at this point. He could... Be an example of repentance and humility and making things right. But instead, he chose to cover up his sin. David chose to cover up his sin. He sent a message back to, or over to Joab, who was with the army. He said, hey, tell Uriah to come back home 
Let's give this guy a rest. I want a report from the military. Make Uriah the messenger. Little unusual request to have such a high-ranking military guy be the messenger, but okay. Uriah comes back into him, and David spends some time with him and says, hey, why don't you go, go see your wife for a while? Spend the night with your wife, you know, have a good time. You're back here. You might as well rest and relax, and then you can go back the next day. And you can see where that's going. David's trying to cover up for his sinfulness. But Uriah doesn't do it. He walks outside the palace. He hangs out with the palace guards and he spends the night there. And the guards come back to David and say, hey, this guy spent the whole night with us. Can't you believe it? What a stand-up guy. He wouldn't even, he had the perfect opportunity to go home to his wife and eat some good food and hang out with her, sleep in his own bed tonight. But instead he stayed the whole night with us. What a great guy. And David's in there going, ugh. Why wouldn't he just do what I wanted? So David calls him back in. Says, Uriah, here's your great opportunity to just have a little R&R, man. Why wouldn't you go back and spend time with your wife? And listen to what Uriah said to David. The ark, that's the ark of the covenant, and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents, and Joab, my master's men, are camping in the open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. Now, I don't know for sure, but I have to imagine that David, upon hearing this, was just burning up inside. Because here's a guy who, he's, a, he's of a Hittite heritage. His parents or his grandparents were Hittite. They converted to Judaism. They gave him a Jewish name, Uriah. And, and here is a man who is showing the utmost in character right now. And David is showing absolutely none. So what's David going to do about this well he had dinner with Uriah he got him good and drunk figure that'll do it lose some of those inhibitions send him home again and what does Uriah do he sleeps with the guards again out in front of the palace now David is again faced with a choice his cover-up has failed and if he just lets this play out Uriah is going to come back at the end of fighting season and he's going to find his wife Bathsheba several months pregnant and he's probably going to put two and two together Something isn't right here. And Bathsheba is going to say, what are you going to do? It's the king. And now David is exposed. His sin opened up for all to see. It would be a public relations disaster for the king, who is currently at the top of his game. Things are going so well for David right now. The kingdom's borders have never been bigger. The economy is booming. Their military is the most powerful in the region. They're fighting back every other enemy. Things are going so well for David. And if this stuff comes out, if this one little act of indiscretion comes out, it's going to overshadow all of those great things. And who knows what could happen in the kingdom. So the next morning... David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. The letter instructed Joab, station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest, then pull back so he will be killed. So he chose to murder Uriah. And Uriah carried his own death sentence in the sealed letter to Joab and Joab opened it up, who knows, maybe in Uriah's presence and he read it, couldn't believe it. But Joab's a good soldier. He's going to follow orders. 
And who knows, maybe the king had uncovered something. Maybe Uriah had been working for the enemy this whole time. Maybe there was some good reason for this to be done discreetly for the good of the kingdom. And so Joab did what David asked. And he made sure that Uriah was killed in battle. Joab sent a message back to David to say, hey, it's done. Uriah is dead. And this is where we get a window into how far David has fallen. Just how deep that cavern of sin has gone in his heart. He says this in verse 25. Well, tell Joab not to be discouraged, David said. The sword devours this one today and that one tomorrow. Fight harder next time and conquer the city. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. When the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace and she became one of his wives. Then she gave birth to a son, but the Lord was displeased with what David had done. Can you imagine Joab getting that letter back from David? Several men died, by the way. David's intention was just to have Uriah die, but the way it worked out, Uriah and several men got too close to the wall. That was sort of the design of this plan. And so when the arrows came down and shot at them and the mighty men came out and fought against them, a number of men died. Several men died here. And David's response is, don't worry about it. Not that big of a deal. People die in war, Joab. Don't be discouraged. Fight harder next time. Conquer the city. Let's just move on. Now, Joab sometime later would turn against David. He would team up with one of David's own sons to try to dethrone David. And I just wonder if some of that goes back to this moment. When Joab got a letter from David that showed just how calloused his heart had become, that he was willing to say, about the men that were fighting on his behalf, fighting to take this city for him, fighting to protect the people of Israel from the Ammonites, and that he would say, not a big deal. People die this day and that day. Just move on. David made a lot of bad choices to get here. The first one seemed innocent enough. He just had too much time on his hands. He had idle time. He wasn't being productive. No big deal. But that led to keeping looking at something that he shouldn't have continuing to dwell on something he shouldn't have. And then he chose to ignore the warning signs that were presented to him. And then he chose to cover up his sin after that. And then he chose to murder Uriah. But this last one is probably the most dangerous one of all because after all of this, David hardened his heart. It had become cold and calloused. And God was not pleased. Now here's something we have to understand about God. Our God is a God who loves to give forgiveness. He's a God who absolutely loves to forgive. If there's one thing we know about God, it's that he loves a good redemption story. God loves a good redemption story. He cannot wait to forgive us. He is so patient with us. But here David has run in the opposite direction of forgiveness and repentance. Even to the point of trying to convince Joab and Bathsheba, hey, everything's good. I've taken care of it. It's all done now. No one will ever have to know. But God was displeased with what David did. God is so patient with us. He wants us to repent before he has to step in and drop the hammer. God is so gracious and patient with us. He gave David chance after chance after chance to confess 
to repent, to turn from his sinful pattern that he was on. He was watching David this whole time. And I wonder if there may be some of us here who are following a similar path that David followed. Or maybe we are somewhere along that journey of idleness or keep continuing to dwell on something that we shouldn't or where we're actually ignoring the warning signs and going ahead and doing that thing and then we're trying to cover up for it, taking drastic measures. I don't know where you may be on that path, but I'll bet there are some people here or maybe even watching online who are on that path that David was on, a path that led to incredible downfall. And the Bible says that God disciplines his children who he loves. So David gets to a point here where God is going to give him some incredible discipline. A prophet named Nathan came to David and told him the story of a poor man who had one little lamb. And this lamb was like a child to him, like a daughter to him. He let the lamb eat from his own plate. He just adored this cute little lamb. And one day a rich man, Nathan said, a rich man came and he had a guest in town. He had lots of lambs, but he stole the poor man's lamb and killed it to feed his guests. And Nathan the prophet brings this case before David as if it's a real case that he has to try. And he says, what do you think should happen to this guy? And David is furious. He says, that rich man should pay back that poor man four times what he stole. Even that's not good enough. Then that rich man should be killed. That's how strongly David felt about this. And Nathan, the prophet, looked right in the eyes of the man who was responsible to apply and execute judgments based on the law in all of Israel. And he pointed at him and said, David, you are that man. It's an amazing confrontation. David had 17 wives and concubines, by the way. 17. Wouldn't you think that's enough? When Nathan talks about the rich man that had many lambs and the poor man that had one lamb, David had all these wives and concubines and here's Uriah with his one wife and it wasn't enough. David had to come and take Uriah's wife. By the way, just as a side note, the Bible never promotes the idea of having multiple wives or concubines for that matter. We read about it in the Bible because it's what happened. David did what the kings around him did. But God had specifically said in Deuteronomy, do not take multiple wives for kings. Kings should not take multiple wives. And yet that's exactly what David did. So David had 17 wives and concubines. But it wasn't enough. He wanted one more. And that's the dirty secret about sin. It's never enough. Every time we think that, that we've satisfied our desire with sin, it only leads to more because sin never ultimately satisfies, satisfies the desire that we think it will. It always leads to a desire for more sin. And that's where David is at. He already had many wives that he shouldn't have had, but he wants more. There were two questions that we said we wanted to talk about today. The first was, how did King David have such a big failure? We've talked about how we got here. The second one is how could he ever recover from such a big failure? Here's the recovery. This is in the next chapter. Jump over to chapter 12, verse 13. David confessed to Nathan after this story where Nathan confronted him. I have sinned against the Lord, Nathan replied. Yes, but the Lord has forgiven you and you won't die for this sin. Nevertheless, Because you have shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord by doing this, your child will die. And I just want to take a a moment here, because our time is short, to look at the recovery 
of David. How did he recover here? What happened as a result of this? The first thing David did was he admitted his sin. Finally, he admitted his sin. He could have done it at any point along this path. It's been over a year now since, his, since the start of this process. He had lots of time to confess and repent of his sin, but finally, he admitted his sin. Secondly, he was forgiven by God. Nathan tells him, God has forgiven you. God loves to forgive us. He loves a good redemption story. And this story of David here is one of the best. Number three, David would still face consequences for his sin. And here's something important to understand. David had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to repent and confess of his sin. And at the end of all of those opportunities, what did he do? He hardened his heart. He became so calloused to all of this sinfulness that God said enough is enough. And there will be some severe consequences for this, even though you have repented. David lied, committed adultery, lusted, deceived, committed murder. He broke about half the Ten Commandments, maybe more. And so punishment was justly deserved for him. And in this case, God spared his life and took the life of his son. But here's the most amazing thing. David found redemption in a second child by Bathsheba who God would bless with wisdom and riches and who would build God's temple where God would meet with his people. Let's look at that quickly. It's in verse 24. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and slept with her. Uh, I know that's one sentence, but I'm guessing there was a period of time between David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, from the death of her son, and he slept with her. This is a condensed summary here. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and David named him Solomon. The Lord loved the child and sent word through Nathan the prophet that they should name him Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord as the Lord had commanded. Now, for some reason, the name Jedidiah didn't stick. We all call him Solomon. But God's name for Solomon was Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord. David means beloved. And Jedidiah means beloved of the Lord. That's how God felt about Solomon. So here's what I love about this story. With everything David had done up until this point, you would think that God would say, I'm done with you. There's no more future for you. Your legacy is gone. This is it, David. It's just sin after sin after sin and then a rebellious, calloused heart. And yet that's not what God does. He actually restores relationship with David. He gives him a future and a legacy through Solomon. He blesses his son, the son of the woman that he had adultery with. How does God turn something so terrible and horrible into something so beautiful and amazing with blessing? And it comes down to this one simple thing. David repented. It took him a while, but he finally repented of his sin. Unfortunately, he let it go on so long that the consequences would stay with him for the rest of his life. He was never quite the same person again. And he had all kinds of trouble in his life because of the decisions that he made. But he did repent and he did ask God to forgive him and to cleanse him. And he said he had a broken spirit about this. Listen to Psalm 51. I'm going to read it to you, just a portion of it. This was written specifically after this incident where David committed adultery and then his son later died and he repented. Here's what he says. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. 
Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a a loyal spirit within me. Forgive me for shedding blood. O God who saves, then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. You do not desire a sacrifice, or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, oh God. Are you somewhere on the path that David was on? Maybe it doesn't look exactly the same, but you recognize those signposts along the way. Maybe you're in the early stages and there are some warning signs that you need to pay attention to. Or maybe you've made a big mistake and you need to repent and turn back to God. The good news for you is that our God loves a good redemption story. And he would love for yours to be one of those stories. David said, a broken and repentant heart will not be rejected by God. And he experienced that personally. We're going to push the pause button for a moment here. Because what we've been trying to do throughout this series is invite people to share some of their story with us. And so we're going to come back to this in just a minute to to wrap up. But I want to introduce you to someone named Vitaly Petrov. And Vitaly grew up in the former Soviet Union. His grandparents were imprisoned for their faith and spent time in different prisons. He had some real challenges with this growing up. Um, But Vitaly is now the president of Trinity Video Seminary. Anybody remember Trinity Video Seminary? That's the project that we raised money for and gave them money so that they could continue the work that they are doing to produce seminary-level education with some of the best world-class professors at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, the school that's a part of our association. They're producing that training, many, many hours of videos, and then giving an opportunity for people over in the former Soviet Union to have seminary-level training without having to attend or have the expense of going to seminary and they can even do it in their own language it's amazing so would you join me in welcoming to the stage Vitaly Petrov well thank you so much for being with us here today uh, thank you very much brother and uh Thank you for the church, but first I want to say, I I promise I'm from Russia, but I'm not going to intervene in any election in this church. (laughs) We like your... (laughs) It's a good disclaimer right now. Yeah, we like your pastor. He's a really good teacher, you know, we just like your... I'll pay you later. I I want your worship team, you know, I want your worship team just to transfer, teleport to our church in Russia. So oh, okay, yeah, well maybe you should bring I a video crew it. and yeah, uh, the, we'll translate but it. But I want to say, you know what, all of us, we have one president, his name is Jesus, and he was never elected, and he elects us. Only one time people vote for him, the world to crucify it. Yeah. So he forgave us for this world. He is our king, the king of kings. That's true. Why don't you tell us about how you first met him, your upbringing, and, and how you came to trust in Jesus? Uh, yeah, that's an interesting story. Uh, my grandparents, they were Christians, they actually accept Lord about more than 100 years ago. I'm the fourth generation Christian from the evangelical missionary. It was connected with German mission, I think Mennonite. 
But when the Stalin time, the communist time, they finally they end up, first time they even sent them to Siberia. And uh, my grandmother lost her two young sons, so it's only my mother survived and her sister. And later they, they were sent to prison again, my grandfather and the parents from my father. Actually, my parents were children of prisoners near that kind of like a big camp, the Gulag camp. And they had to, even like the people who survived prison, they have to stay 10 years near the prison to work. This is where my parents met, and I was born there. So, And my father was becoming a minister. So he, he was starting the churches, some underground, and more than 20 churches during the communist time. But grew up as a kid in, in the Christian, with a communist, all the teaching everywhere, it was kind of pretty tough. And then you sometimes, like the, the biology lesson, the teacher look at you and they tell how bad a Christian are, and they will, they will explain that people came from monkey, they are not created by God. And in a break time, then my classmates say, you know, people were made by monkey. I say, no, 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 it's great. No, 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 they say, see, the teacher proved it. I say, okay, those who are non-believers, they came from monkey, and believers were created by God. Are you okay with that? But it, it's, it's built up. It, it's built up in a certain way. You're kind of like always in a hostile station. They mock you or something if they want to put you down. And there was one story about the, the yeah, story. Yeah, you told me you faced a lot of, of mockery growing up for your faith in Jesus. And this morning we've been talking about David and his mistake that he had to repent from. And, and you shared that you have a similar story of a time that you uh, had to repent from something and turn back. You want to share that with us? Yeah, I want to share that it's one of my life story when... I let God down, what I say, but it was kind of like it was a lake, frozen lake about a couple of miles away from our house, and everybody go to play hockey, you know, Russia hockey is a big thing. And it's kind of a big thing here right now, too. Yeah, I heard that, I guess. <laughs> so, but you walk a couple of miles, and you play for several hours, come back home, but there was a, children came from different villages, and one time I joined the team, and they didn't know I'm Christian. And they just treat me like their own and everything fine. And I play hockey. They like it. And I was going for days. I kind of, it feels good. You know, you want their own. We're accepted. The one day I remember I came and they were sitting in a group and then arguing something. And I came and said, hey, Vitaly, he said, somebody tell you you're Christians. We don't believe it. Tell, is it true? And that was just a really bad point in my life. I don't want to get this. I like this kind of friendship and everything. And I said, no, I'm not Christian. Mm. That was one of the down points because you're not, for them, it's not your Christian bed, but now I'm lied about this. So yeah. Kind of like a David did things. It was so bad. And they say, the one friend said, hey, we told you, he's a normal guy. Let's go play. So they went to play. I couldn't play. I, I just, I say, no, I need to go home. So I did this. And I was walking this couple miles back and I was crying hmm. I said Lord what have I done just my parents my grandparents were stood up for you and, and I said this time I would never never betray you again in hmm. my life and even later I told the guys that I'm Christian they don't want to play with me I said I don't care but they sent me to the North Pole for two years and later on when I grew up because of Christians. So As part of the military, part of right? the military, but they, they, it was a special bad place where people hardly survived. So wow. I mean, it's kind of like the normal situation you live under this. And you just go, you couldn't go to university because you're Christians. You couldn't go a lot of different things, but there was a perestroika came and it was just churches start open and it was really excited time. 
and I was entered the Bible College. It was Campus Crusade organized in Moscow. It was really great. So we, it was good teachers, and I became a pastor in Moscow Bible Church for several years. And I, I work out my knowledge in the first two or three years. I said, I need more. So God actually was great things. God sent me to the Trinity Video Seminary. Uh, not Video Seminary, Trinity, Trinity Divinity Evangelical School. Divinity yeah, School that's, yeah. Now he sent me to Trinity Video Seminary. Right. But the teachers were so great. We never had this. We had only communist knowledge, but never had these teachers. I said, how we can get them to Russia, to our friends, to other places? And I thought, we need to record them. It was kind of, became the idea. I came to my friends in the Moscow. They were working on national TV. And they say, what are you going to do? I said, there's a courses that we want to record, like 20, 30 hours. I said, are you, you crazy? He said, we're making 15 minutes news or two hours movie. I said, I don't know. God just lay in my heart. So right now we have over 150 different courses and seminars. And wow. the spread, when we have our YouTube channel statistic, is like over 180 countries. We just thought we're working for Russia, but actually the mostly the students. We have over 4,000 students. And recently the Chinese came, and they, they knew the professor. Say, let's translate the courses. The last spring we bring the Chinese and train him how to dub over courses. He's dubbing over. We started doing the course of Greg Ott, Global Church Planting. There's courses in Uzbek language. Wow. The last December I went to Uzbekistan because Uzbekistan turned to the China for the internet. And now they couldn't have the access to the YouTube. They mm -hmm. have like our website but not YouTube. So we create a special program with the micro SD cards with 128 gigabytes. You put like nine courses and an app, how to study everything. So we put them in the shoes and go through the border in Uzbekistan and they were taking the churches from them. And they're just meeting the groups and not have enough teachers. So they're watching these courses in these little groups and whatever police when they raid wow. them up. So, but God is using the great things. I want to say thank you, dear brothers. Thank you for your church. Thank you for your gift. Uh, I wish I could tell you about all these people. We have like hundreds sometimes who finish the courses, write their uh, reports. And it was like, and all of them in the end said, please don't stop. Please don't stop. And this is the best of the best people because the people don't take the courses out of curiosity. I mean, this is people in the churches, in the group, in the ministries. So, but thank you. America has kind of become Antioch of the world church in the last hundred years. So, guys, don't lose it. So. Thank you so much for sharing with us because I know we won't see all of those letters that you get to see, but we got to hear from yeah. you. And this is what uh, the giving supported from Take Back Black Friday. So we're so thankful to be a part of it. Thank I'll you tell you more things in the luncheon after the church. That's perfect. Yes, the luncheon after church. Well, I don't know what part of our story today you resonate the most with, whether it's the idleness of David or his trying to cover up his sin or his calloused and hardened heart. But whatever it is, I encourage you to really think about repenting of your bad choices, your sinful habits, whatever it is, and turning back to God and letting him cleanse you. 1 John 1, 1.9 says, if we confess our sin to him, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, from all of our bad deeds. He will do that for us. See, here's the thing. David's sin had the penalty of death. Now, it should have been his death according to the law. God and Nathan allowed that to be the death of his child instead of David, but there was still death involved. Can you imagine if Nathan, the prophet, had come to David and said, the penalty for your sin, David, is your death or the death of your son, but I am going to pay that penalty in your place. I, Nathan, the prophet, am going to allow myself to be killed so that you don't have to. 
That would be an incredible thing, and that's not what happened. But that's exactly what Jesus did for us. About 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to this earth and he willingly died in our place so that our penalty for our sins could be paid for. So that when we ask God to forgive us and when we confess our sins to him, there is no more need for any penalty. There is no more need for any judgment because Jesus already paid the infinite price for all of the judgment we could ever experience. And so all we have to do, according to 1 John 1, 9, is confess our sins, and he will faithfully forgive us of our sins. After the service today, we're going to sing one more song, but after the service today, we will have people up front here who would be very happy to talk with you more about this. If you want to learn more about Jesus, if you need prayer for something going on in your life right now, please, after this last song, come up and see us, and we would love to talk with you and to pray with you and answer any questions that you may have. Would you pray with me one last time? Heavenly Father, we love you, and we're thankful for your forgiveness for your redemption, for the fact that you are a God that loves a good redemption story, and that's what I am. I am a story of your forgiveness and your redemption. That's what so many of us here are. And if there is someone here, Lord, who does not know your forgiveness, who has not trusted in you to save them from their sins, has not turned away from that to follow you, Lord, I pray that you would work in their heart right now. Holy Spirit, would you convict them? And then, Lord, would you give them the boldness and the courage to step out after the service and speak with one of us today so that we can share with them more about how you can recover and restore their life no matter what they've been through, no matter what part of that path they are on, no matter what big mistakes they may have made. You love to forgive us. Thank you for being such a forgiving and gracious God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.